You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson, Ruth Meets Boaz, Philip Edwards will explore God's providence working behind the scene, arranging a divine encounter for Ruth. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk for all the latest news and to see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Just do a brief recap then, because uh, not all were here last week uh, on what we covered. We said that Ruth was, it's a beautiful story. And uh, in it is the teaching of mostly the providence of God. God is never seen in the story. He never makes an appearance, as it were, like he does in in many other, you know, he speaks in situations, he speaks through prophets. He doesn't do this in the book of Ruth. But we know that God is there behind the scenes all the time. We see his providential hand working. We see also that God is interested in the ordinary things of life. And the people that the book is written about are really very ordinary people. They, they have a part in history and the purposes of God like we all do, but there's an ordinariness about them. Chapter 1 was really all about Naomi. It was about her faith uh, and a remarkable faith when we read of all the tragedy there was in her life. Uh, I, I like her because... Um, she's she's very honest she says exactly how she feels about god she's you know she she's quite bitter uh she's not um she's not nasty towards god she doesn't blame god but she says you're sovereign god and all this has happened and you knew it was all happening and therefore you permitted it to happen so but but going through all the hardship is her faith and it's that faith that she has that actually directs Ruth to have a relationship with God. So sometimes when we go through adversity, that speaks louder to people who are watching our lives than if we go through the blessings of God, which it makes sense if we just think about that for a moment. So this week we're going to be confining ourselves to study study chapter 2. And chapter 2 is where Ruth meets Boaz. That's really uh, what it's all about. We'll un- unwrap some other teachings within that, uh, but, but that's where we, we're going this evening. So we'll start by reading uh, the second chapter of Ruth. If you have your Bibles, I'll be reading from the NIV. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind, uh, sorry, the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favour. Naomi said to her, go ahead my daughter. So she went out and she began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. And it turned out she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. 
Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, Whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, She is the Merbites who came back uh, from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, Listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I've told the men not to touch you and whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men are filling. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, Why have I found such favour in your eyes? And you notice me, a foreigner. Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favour in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servants, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. At mealtimes, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. Then she sat down with the harvesters. He offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to the men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the fields until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one whose place she had been working. The name of the man I work with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, the man is of course a relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabites said, he even said to me, stay with the workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and the wheat harvest were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law.
Okay, so that's where we're going tonight. It's the meeting between uh, Boaz and and Ruth. It's interesting. Most detective stories, if you're into reading detective stories, um, they keep the last couple of pages and they 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 explain everything to you, don't they? Who done it and how he done it and everything else. The writer here he does a strange thing at the beginning of chapter two. He introduces Boaz. Now, Boaz is the big secret, but of course he just exposes this uh, in the first verse of chapter 2. Listen, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. Then it, it leaves that and goes on with the rest of the story about how she goes into the field and she doesn't know where she's going and all that. So it sort of let the cat out of the bag, really. So neither Naomi nor Ruth, at the, at the start of this chapter, they don't know there's anyone of any uh, influence or position who's close to them, uh, anyone of wealth or, or anything, who is a relative of theirs. They know nothing of this. Now, you say, well, wh why didn't she know? Well, families were fairly extended in those days. It wasn't like a little family of five or six people. Families sometimes run into hundreds, and families were very extended. He was called a kinsman of them. A kinsman is another word just for a blood relative. So Boaz was a blood relative of Elimelech. As I said, chapter 1 was all about Naomi. This chapter 2 is really all about Ruth and, and Boaz and that meeting. At the end of the day, she goes into the field and she works, and at the end of the day after work, she tells Naomi what's happened to her. It, it, she thought it was just coincidence. Uh, by chance, she went into this field. By chance, she met this man called Boaz, and he meant nothing to her. Only then does the true significance of our meeting, it becomes apparent. It becomes apparent to Naomi. It's not apparent to Ruth because Ruth doesn't know about the family connection at all. Ruth says this in uh, the 20th verse, The Lord bless him, she says. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added that, a man is our closest relative. He is the one of our kinsman redeemers. We'll get into what a kinsman redeemer is uh, later on as we get into another chapter. But of course, once Naomi explains that this man has some significance and importance in their lives, she realizes that the meeting was no accident that part of the caring provision of God is there. It's being demonstrated. Like I said, God doesn't appear. He doesn't say anything. He's not obvious. But in it all the time, we see the caring providence, the provision of God behind the scenes all the time. When Ruth meets him, it seems an accident. But we're in the know, aren't we? because the author's let it out in verse 1. He's told us already. He's spoiled the story for us in a way. He's stopped it building to an exciting climax by, by letting us know. 
So behind the apparent chances of the ordinary day-to-day encounters, God is expressing his providential rule and care. Can I encourage you that he's doing the same for you? You might not realise that God is there or he's even interested or doing anything, but you can be assured that he is. It's in his nature. Some people say, I wonder wonder what God is doing every day. Well, if he's looking after something like, uh, I don't know, two and a half billion Christians and all the other five and a half billion people in the world, he's kept pretty busy, um, 24 hours a day. Uh, There's a lot there to be dealing with. And when you think that God is interested in every person and he's, he's really deeply interested in us, he deeply loves us and he's committed to us. Who was this Boaz then? Let's have a look at this man. Why is this information so significant about him? Well, in the first place, Boaz is this man called a a kinsman of Elimelech's family. We're going to look at what that is a bit later. The second thing is that Boaz is a man of standing. Let's first look at the thing about him being a kinsman a blood relative of Elimelech. We shall discover the crucial importance of this, as I said, a little bit later in the story. But what I want to talk about at this moment is the fact that they were family. And and we need to understand something about family from God's perspective. The family in the Old Testament, um, it's a much wider network of relationships than what we know today. When we speak about family, we normally speak about the nuclear family. That is uh, parents with as many dependent children that they have. We call that the family. We say, that's my family, a nuclear family. If we take an example of someone like Jacob, Jacob had literally hundreds of people in his family. He was the head of a family of hundreds. We know that Abraham too had hundreds in his family. With Jacob, he was the father of at least three generations. Uh, He had servants. He even had resident aliens that had come and joined his family. There were widows and orphans that he had taken care of, who he made himself responsible for who lived under his protection. So he was head of this house. So when when the Bible talks about a family, it's, it's talking about a much broader network of relationships than we understand today. We need to understand this reading the Old Testament. The family uh, in ancient Israel, it stood at the center of what we call connected relationships. Everything was related to this family. God was related to the family. Israel, the nations, were connected by the families. You read through your Bible and you get the genealogies and all these things, and it talks about a tribe, then it names every family in the tribe. You say, oh, that's such boring reading, Phil. Do we have to read all those bits as well? Well, the idea is God wants you to know that the family is vitally important to him and the size of the family and everyone's connectedness to God and to the nation was through the family. And also with God and with covenant, the land, the land was very important. 
So families had land that was given to them by God. So the land and God and uh, Israel were all connected by these powerful families that existed. And to God, it was it was important. It was the basic uh, unit of socializing and of relational structures you were of a particular family we get this coming through in this story she's overwhelmed when she realized that boaz is a a near relative of elimelech and he is a wealthy powerful man she thinks this is wonderful god has made tremendous provision for us in this thing as i say the land of israel was given to tribes and the tribes then gave the land, uh, distributed it to all the families. So all the family had land. They had land that they owned. The land was ultimately always owned by God. The land was the Lord. That's why when things happened in the land, the land became cursed because it was God's land. And often the land had to be cleansed. And when we uh, hope next year we're going to study about covenants, we'll see that the land plays an important part in the covenant that God made with his people. It, it's important for us as well, because we're new covenant people, and we know the whole world is the Lord's. And when Jesus comes back to be king, he doesn't just come back to be king of Israel, he comes back to be the king of the whole world. So the land of the whole world is, is the Lord's and he, Christ will take it back and be the king of the whole world. So the land that God gave to your family, it was your land. It was given to you by God forever. It was part of the terms of the covenant that God entered into with you that he would give you some land and the idea is your family would live on this land forever family uh, solidarity was it was extremely strong in ancient Israel the members of the family wider family they had an obligation one to another so if anything happened in the family they would care for one another to the extent that if someone was killed in your family the family would end up killing the person who killed them and it was quite legitimate that's why we have what they talk cities of refuge, you know, where people could run to for safety if, if, if somebody had died by an accident and all those sorts of things. We could study that again some other time. So the family was obligated to each other, to look after each other, to care for each other, to protect each other. The family was the very strong, powerful thing in the Old Testament times. Connected with that, we have been brought in to God's family. So if I've emphasized to you the importance that God places on families, it's important to understand that we've been brought into God's family. So just as we see this tight connection between uh, in, in the nation of Israel between families, that's, that's the sense of joining the family of God. Bible says once we were far away from God but through Jesus we have been adopted into his family this is how Paul puts it uh, in the second chapter of Ephesians 17 and 19 
It says, he came, this is Christ, and preached to you who were far away. Well, that's us. We were the Gentiles who were far away from God. And he came and he preached peace to those who were near, which were the Jews. So Jesus came to both preach to the Jews, those that were near, and to the Gentiles and those that were further away. And it goes on to say, for through him, that's Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but your fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. This is a big deal with God. You might not consider it a big deal yourself because you don't understand the whole process of Jewish family life, but it's a big deal with God that we're brought into the family. And so there is a tremendous amount of protection that's afforded to us and care and love because God is, is, is building families. Of course, we're not like Israel. We're not a redeemed nation ruled over by priests like Israel, but we still aim to produce a society the church is the society that God is seeking to produce. So it's interesting, as we become Christians and we join the church, I don't mean now the local church, but the universal church, we've joined an enormous, powerful family. That's why sometimes when you meet a Christian that you maybe you're away somewhere or on a holiday and you meet Christians and there's, there's something between you and you think, this is weird. I've never met this person ever before, but they're a Christian and I'm a Christian, and I know there's something of a spiritual connection that's going on here because we are part of the family of God. So we still, there's something in us that wants to produce this society. And in the local church, this is what we want, isn't it? We want relatedness. We want togetherness. We know when it's not there and we want it. And we want to be part of something. We want to be uh, appreciated and accepted and, and be part of that group. It's really a triangle of relationship, isn't it? It's man with man and then man with God. So that's the relationship we have with one another and with God at the same time. So he was a kinsman, he was a blood relative. So it, it was a big deal that, that Boaz was this blood relative. He was part of their family, they were part of his family. The second thing we see about Boaz, he was a man of standing. A man, it says, it uses that word, a man of standing. Uh, morally, he was a man of standing and also a man of substance. He was quite wealthy. He obviously had farms and employees and so forth. So in Boaz, we're introduced to a man of integrity, a man of influence and a man of means. And of course, for us, he is a type. He he pictures something of God's of God's God. God's goodness, God's, God's life is manifested through this man as we look at his life. Again, more about the importance of this will come out later in the story. We're just laying the foundation as chapter 2 is here. It turns out that one of the most important features 
or faith in God's providence. Now, mm, you might not have heard that term before. You've heard the term faith, obviously, we have faith. But we're to have faith in many things. And one of them is to have faith in God's providence. Having faith in the fact that God is providentially working in your life. Whenever people say to me, how do I know something is the will of God? I say, well, what we have to do, we have to have a sense of what the Spirit of God is saying inside. Then we need to have it confirmed, maybe through scriptures or in some other way, maybe uh, God will speak through somebody. But the third thing is we need to see the providential hand of God working in our lives. And then we, we can be pretty much assured that God is in this because God is involved and he wants to not reveal himself or speak to us necessarily, but as in this case, to show his providence working behind the scenes. God doing things that we might call coincidence or chance, but of course, we know it's neither of those. We know it's the providence of God. So Ruth, unaware of Boaz at this stage, goes into the field she takes advantage of one of the generous provisions of the laws of Israel, that concerning gleaning, gleaning. Out of, out of God's concern for the poor and, and the helpless, the law required reapers in the fields when it was harvest time to leave the edges of the field. They didn't gather all the, the harvest in, they left something at the edges. And so the, the, the poor and the needy, they could come behind the harvesters and they could go along the edges of what was left and, and they, would, they would gather their own particular small harvest. And it, it, was, it was what was called gleanings. They could, they, could, they could harvest that for themselves. The reapers, it says in the law, were not to go back and clear the field again. Once they had moved through and they were leaving a generous amount at the sides, they would leave the, the poorer people of the community to come and do their own reaping or gleaning. This poses a question for us though, doesn't it? As the Christian nations of this world, the richer Christian nations, do we have an obligation to provide for the poor? I know they've recently cut the aid that we give abroad and it's only a, a well a relatively tiny amount of money I know it runs into several millions and millions but it's a tiny amount compared with our budget and I was upset that we had cut it now whatever their arguments the day that as Christian countries we stop reaching out to the poor and ministering to the poor that says something about our status as a Christian nation and I was, I was quite saddened that we had, or the government of our country had made that decision to do that. Ruth, we are told, she says, as it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz. I like that expression, as it turned out. It's like she didn't have a clue, did she, bless her? And why should she? And we don't half the time. You know, things happen in our lives and we might even get quite upset about them. It's not with our routine or sometimes things do happen and it works out well. But it's God working behind the scene. 
we saw in chapter one of some of the providential things of God were quite dark. We called it the dark side of God, but it was all in God's providence. Whether it was related to death or other things, it was the providential hand of God working. And here, she says, as it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz. This is just another reinforcement from the author, really, for us to have faith in the providence of God. We're to have faith in his providence day by day believing that God is providentially working behind the scenes he's arranging things he's working things out we know from the beginning because of verse 1 we know this is no accident uh, we know that it isn't a coincidence that she's wandered into this field she's met this man we we know this because the writer has has tipped us off she thinks it's simply unplanned circumstances, but nothing of the sort. It's part of God's gracious care, his care for his people. We've said a lot about God's sovereignty and God working in our lives and, and, and God's providence. We must rescue ourselves from, though, this deterministic view of God which sometimes accompanies this sort of faith. So before we go too far into something, it's my job to just pull you back a little bit. We're not pawns on some divine chess game where God is moving the parts exactly where he wants them to go, or we're not puppets on a string uh, worked by some celestial puppeteer who's causing us to just do exactly what he wants to do when he wants to do it. That's not, that's not how it works. We're left with a paradox. A paradox is an apparent contradiction. The Bible's full of them. They drive people mad because one argument says this and the other argument says that and you say well how can we bring these two into harmony it's a paradox and often we can't intellectually we struggle with a paradox bringing it uh, to, to equate so we have a paradox that human choice and responsibility are very much our concern we have to make choices every day we have to take responsibility for our lives just because God is behind the scene he doesn't take responsibility for your decisions you make them you make the choices and you make the decisions the outworking of our faith it says is with fear and trembling we're not terrified of, of choosing to walk forward in life, but there's a sense of, mm, I need to choose what God would have me to choose. What is God saying? Uh, I want to walk in the right steps. So we do it with fear and trembling. It, but it's very much what we do. And the reason is, God explains this. It says that God is at work within us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So God is at work within us, bringing about his will in our lives. He doesn't operate from above forcing us to do something. He works in us and through us. So that's why you sometimes struggle with things. And sometimes you'd say, Lord, you just control my life. And God says, oh, I don't do that. I'm not a controller. 
I can't make things happen. You have to make decisions. You have to make choices. And what I do, I work through you. As you yield your life to me, as you want to do my will, so my grace can operate through your life. It's true that God's grace is a power that sort of acts upon us um, sometimes to counteract the the sinful nature that we have God's grace can work upon us but the primary understanding of grace is that grace is a personal relationship word God God's grace above all means means a gracious relationship between God and us so God's grace in your life is God graciously working with you he doesn't take away your responsibility he doesn't take away your choices he doesn't take away what you want to do but he graciously comes and works in you and through you and with you so the more of God there is in us the more we will walk according to his his purposes and will walk according to his will scripture says in Genesis 6 and 8 it says Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord you might know that verse that Noah found favor or he found grace in the eyes of the Lord the truth is that God graciously found Noah he didn't find grace he found God found him and it's God who found you in his graciousness God found you you didn't make uh, you had to make a decision once he found you but he found you he opened your eyes to to his truth and, and to his existence so he invites us to share in a gracious relationship with him Noah was considered righteous it says because he believed and trusted God he was considered righteous because he believed and trusted God in other words God just declared him righteous because of his faith it is only through our belief in Christ Jesus that we are given righteousness God has gifted you righteousness you didn't you didn't earn it or work for it he gifted it to you so he could have a gracious relationship with you without gifting you his righteousness he could never have had a gracious relationship with you but because he is gracious and he wants that relationship he gifts you righteousness it may be said of us then that we found grace in the eyes of the Lord God's grace I want to just impress this upon you again God's grace doesn't act upon us like a force to remove our freedom as it were rather God's gracious relationship creates a freedom within us to choose having come into this gracious relationship with God what it what it brings with it is a freedom a freedom sinners sinners think they're free sinners think they can do whatever they want to do that nothing controls them or manipulates their life or or or, or makes them do things they don't want to do but that's not true a sinner is bound by the law of sin and death he's bound he hasn't got the freedom to choose they think they have freedom to choose but they don't but when we come to christ 
Christ's graciousness brings us into a freedom so we can choose what we want to do. God's gracious relationship does that with us. I'll just give you a very simple example. A sinner, when he wakes up on Sunday morning, he never thinks, I think I might go to church today. Why? Because he's not free to do that. He's bound by the sin of law and death. He's bound. He can't make that decision. He can never make that decision because he will always, he will always move in the direction of not going towards God or not going to church. You, on the other hand, when you wake up every Sunday morning, you have the freedom to choose. Well, if there's a church to go to, you say, I can choose whether I want to go to church or don't want to go to church. See, you've been brought into a freedom. The, the graciousness of God brings us into freedom. Now, it's all right if you choose not to go to church. That's fine. It's fine if you choose to go to church. The only thing is, if you go, you will receive a blessing from the Lord. And if you don't, well, you might not receive the blessing that you would have got if you went. So, but you're still free, you see. There is no condemnation in the Lord. There is no, there's no legalism in the Lord. You're a free agent. And for the first time in your life, you've been free. Now, if you've been brought up under legalism and you think, I have to go, I must go, well, step away from that. Step into the freedom that you have, the freedom to choose what it is you want to do. That freedom is important. Let's look at Boaz's uh, prayer for Ruth. It's in verse 12. He says this, he says, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. Then it says, May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Mm, that reminds you of Psalm 91, doesn't it? We take refuge under his wings. Did you see that there before? Or did that one slip past you? We take refuge under his wings. And that's, that's part of his prayer for her there. Two words I want you to focus at with me now. This thing of being, the Lord will repay you. And then it says, may he richly reward you. Now, sometimes when we read things, we just, we just lump all the words together. That's not really good. I mean, there are two words, and they, they have two different meanings. So let's just pull this apart a little bit, and let's ask some questions about what he is saying. When Boaz prays to God, he prays that God will repay Ruth. He says it, may the Lord repay you. I'm praying for you, and my prayer is that God will repay you he's asking god to pay her back for what she has done now this idea of payment this is boaz speaking in the context of being in a covenant relationship with god so god is saying if you do this i'll do that if you do this i'll do that if you don't do this then i won't do that so we get the idea that as we walk with God, God does things for us. It's as though it looks like he owes us something. Because we've done something, he owes us something in return. He prays that she would be made up for what she had lost, for all the pain that she had suffered, for all her self-giving to Naomi. He said, Lord, are you going to repay her? 
what what do, what do we make of this concern about payment and reward should we be looking for what we can get out of the christian life uh, some christians think well if i do this god will do that for me lord of lord i've given up everything to follow you so what what do you want payment for that you expect god to pay you something yeah you think god owes you something because you've received his grace and his love and his blessing does god owe you anything is that is that what we're talking about here if we do good things for god does god owe us if we do a kindness does he owe us anything at all does boaz's faith point to a belief that one needs to earn favor of self-giving service is that what boaz is pointing out when he's talking about lord she needs to be repaid for what she has done you say no surely we're justified by grace through faith not by works there's no works in this it's it's the gift it's a gracious gift of god but then to muddy the waters like you knew i was going to then in the new testament it speaks about um, receiving rewards from the lord matthew 5 and 12 says rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven well is that a payment is that a reward when do we get it should we expect it what's this all about well our salvation is without a doubt a free gift from god without a doubt you couldn't do anything to earn it or get it he simply gifted you righteousness there is no question of earning it or god obliged really to pay anything if we serve him but then god does choose to reward us if we act in a certain way so let's differentiate the two words a payment is what we're owed god owes us nothing a reward is something given in recognition of one's service efforts and achievements it's not a payment it's what god chooses to graciously give us you know as i've looked at other christians i think god it's unfair that some people have been more richly rewarded than i have been rewarded or then i look at my own life and thinking lord how come i'm so blessed and others don't seem to be so blessed as me so we got the rewards of the lord now it says great is your reward in heaven so can we expect rewards and and different uh, rewards in life now now i might end up with more questions than answers but that's all part of fun of studying the word of god together isn't it jesus teaches that the father who sees his children he sees his children giving to the needy praying and fasting in secret even giving a cup of water will not go unrewarded it says and god is described as a rewarder of those who seek him god pays us nothing because he owes us nothing and he never will owe us anything but he does choose to reward us mm. 
I've got to introduce something else here just to uh, confuse you a little bit more, but, but stay with it. We must distinguish between what has been called, I never uh, put names to this, what has been called arbitrary rewards and proper rewards. Arbitrary rewards and proper rewards. Arbitrary rewards have no direct relationship to the behavior for which they are given. So your behavior in doing something, you might receive an arbitrary reward and it has nothing to do with your behavior. It's about something that you have done or produced. There's nothing wrong in arbitrary rewards. It's, it's just a, a, a natural illustration. An arbitrary reward is like being paid for an oil painting you've created. Now, I know there are some artists amongst us, so I think this is a good illustration. An arbitrary reward is, is some, say, say you receive a sum of money for, for painting a picture. That's called an arbitrary reward, a payment for something. You've been awarded something, given something. By contrast, a proper reward they are the direct and integrally related consequences of your behavior. So, painting the picture, it produced maybe some money for you, an arbitrary reward, but the, the joy, the, the skills that you developed in painting the picture are what we call a proper reward. So it's something that is internal. It's the blessing you received by being able to paint, by being able to create. You received a reward, what we call a proper reward. So what are the proper rewards then for giving to the needy or praying or fasting or giving a cup of water? What it, the proper rewards are through these actions we enter into a relationship with God. God expresses himself in our lives by us doing this and so the proper reward is what we receive by doing it. So it's almost like as you do it you're receiving. It is more blessed to give than to receive. The blessing comes in you doing it. Now, you might get some arbitrary rewards in being this way, but the proper reward is what you gain by doing the kind act, by praying, by fasting, by giving something to the needy. You actually enjoy God himself. So when he says it's more blessed to give than to receive, the blessing is receiving from the Lord himself. You're at one with God. Jesus, when he teaches on this, he urges that good, good deeds that we do should be done without any concern for rewards. We shouldn't be looking for rewards at all. But in the, in the verse I'm going to give you, he implies that the proper rewards that we will receive, they will come from the hand of God. Let's turn to that verse, Luke 14, 12 and 14. Then Jesus said to his host, 
when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbours. If you do, they might invite you back and so you'll be repaid. So you're already repaid, that's it. You invited the rich and famous, so the rich and famous would invite you, and so that was your motivation for doing it, and so you received your reward. There is no proper reward. The Lord cannot give you a proper reward for that because your whole motivation, your reason for doing it, was to receive an arbitrary reward back. But listen what he goes on to say. But when you give a banquet, Invite the poor and the cripple and the lame and the blind and you will be blessed. In other words, these people that you invite, they cannot reward you arbitrarily. They can't do that. They have got nothing to give you. But as you invite the poor and the needy, you yourself will receive a reward from the Lord. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Again, it said the rewards that we're going to get really uh, are in the future, in the future. Now, it's, it's a double deal with God. As you give yourself now, you, you receive a reward from the Lord now because of all of this in the future, there will be greater rewards that will come, proper rewards. The enjoyment of the reward of good character as you give, as you entertain the poor, as you reach out, you, your, your primary reward will be good character for which the fruit of good actions derive. Good actions produce good character. It's the same as the enjoyment of God himself. Proper rewards. You will receive proper rewards. An enriched relationship with God is the proper reward of loving obedience to him in response to his gracious invitation to love. He invites you to love. As you love, then he rewards you immediately. And there are rewards in the future. If you read the Beatitudes, you know, Matthew chapter 5, talking uh, before he goes into the Sermon on the Mount, what he's saying like this is blessedness or true happiness is the result of having the mind of Christ. So, and then he lists eight things that was in Christ's mind. Remember in Philippians, Jesus says, have the mind of Christ, or Paul in his writing says, you have the mind of Christ. What is the mind of Christ? The mind of Christ is found in the Beatitudes. Let's just quickly run through them. Number one, his dependence on God. His, his, um, he was saddened by the, the, the effects of sin in the world. It, it, was, it was heavy on him. He lived a life of submission to God's will. He thirsted after a righteous life. He was merciful to all men. He, his life, or he lived a life, focused on God. Uh, his being, um, basically he was a peacemaker as he moved amongst men. And he accepted the persecution that came to him. This was how Jesus lived. 
and in all these things that he did and this is how we live we receive proper rewards from the Lord and he lists the rewards you'll get he says if you do this you'll get a proper reward you look through those beatitudes again what you choose will will you'll reap a harvest of what we call a proper reward a proper reward from the Lord Jesus said I and the Father are one this sort of living Jesus said that we live if we live by the Beatitudes it will bring us into oneness with God and remember what Jesus's prayer for us in John 17 he says I pray that we and the Father are one are one so there's might have confused you about rewards and payments I don't know hope there's a bit more clarity about it that actually the rewards that we receive are proper rewards as opposed to arbitrary rewards and the reward is that we're at one with God just as Jesus was at one with God he wants us to be at one with God receiving God himself into our lives I want to talk now about the place in the family a place in the family can I say in this Christian faith of ours and also in the Old Testament faith of the people of Israel there was no room for legalism uh, God hates legalism and we have to make sure that we don't allow it to creep into our lives to creep into our churches what is legalism it's a cold adherence to a, the strict letter of the law when we when we say oh, I must keep the law I must do what God says that's legalism we have to fight against that and come away from that it takes the law the law now outside of the covenant of God's grace at the heart of which is a relationship of generous love whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament God wants a relationship with us where the, all we experience is the generous love of God so what was the law for and we have laws today what he's saying God is saying I want to live in a generous relationship with you but to, to maintain this generous loving relationship we have to build some laws around us so we can stay in this relationship now we have this in natural in a husband and wife relationship they are in a committed generous loving relationship but there are some laws that are written around that relationship and if you break those laws we destroy that covenant relationship that generous loving relationship just the simple one is is what we read in Ephesians it says wives you're to love your husband uh, sorry husbands you're to love your wives let's get it right husbands you're to love your wives but then it says wives you are to respect your husbands now if you break those laws that's a law that, that, that is built around a, a deep loving covenant generous relationship if you break those then the whole thing falls apart this this place in which we find ourselves enjoying a generous loving relationship if we break the laws it's broken 
God gave the laws then to ensure there was a generous love, Old Testament and the New Testament. Ruth, we find, is operating under the law. It was in the law to go and glean. It was in the law of God that she went into the fields and gathered like one of the poor gathering something for herself. And Ruth's needs are more than abundantly met. It says she ate all she wanted and had some left over. So that law was to ensure the generous love of God. That's what the law was in place for. There was enough left over that she could go home and, and, and feed Naomi as well. Boaz told her, didn't he? He said uh, she was to glean even amongst the sheaves. Um, come up to, to where the men are working and, and glean there. Whereas the law, it mentioned only the edges of the field. You see, we're very, we have to be very careful. God's not a legalist. If God has made a law, it's to safeguard his loving relationship with us. That's, that's why he makes a law. He doesn't make a law so he can look at us and, and tell us off and make us walk in a very strict line. No, that's not what the law is about. It was never like that in the Old Testament, and it's definitely like that in the New. Although laws still exist to keep loving relationships intact. Boaz this is to show something of the graciousness of God. Boaz even tells the young men, he says, pull out some of the stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick them up. Now, you say, oh, he only did that because he fancied her. No, he'd only just met her. He was an old, mature man, okay? <laughs> it was nothing like that at all. He was showing you the generousness, the heart of God, that even with the law, God's law is about generosity of love. It's about supporting the weak and the poor. That's what the laws are all about. And, and Boaz's generously, generous response goes beyond the strict requirements of the law. God always went beyond, beyond, to show his generosity and love. In Israel's religion, the law was never an external code merely requiring legalistic subservience. That's not what it was all about. Somehow we can grow up with those bad thoughts in our mind that somehow in the Old Testament that God was a legalist and in the New Testament he's full of grace. Well, God can't change. If God is loving and gracious and kind and generous now, that's what he was to his people in the Old Testament. So any law that he gave them was to safeguard that loving relationship. The law has to be understood within a covenant relationship, within the total order of a person's life. Where did we get all this pharisaical teaching then? When did that come in? Because Jesus is definitely against that. Well, I think it was between the period of the Old Testament and the New Testament. There was this 400-year period. And within that period of 400 years when God didn't speak, it just got quite terrible. It was the separation of the law as a category distinct from a covenant relationship. Instead of, instead of a covenant relationship of love, they separated that 
from the law and so they were hard on the law and say God was a legalist so remember what the Pharisees were like and that's what Jesus really opposed they would just hammer down on the law and say what God requires of you is you keep the law that's not what God required what God required was a loving relationship he wanted to love his people and he wanted his people to love him and the law simply safeguarded that relationship the primary commandment of the law is what is that we love God that's and, and of course in the New Testament it says if you want to put all the laws into one it's simply this that you simply love the Lord your God that's all it was in the Old Testament it's all it's never changed they only needed one law in the Old Testament which was love God love God and it all works out because to safeguard the law uh, the, the, the covenant relationship he built all these laws in each individual ruling is only to be understood as the will of God is so far as it is an overall injunction to love to love to love the law the law the laws are to be understood as the application and practice of the primary command to love to love James is right he says there's only one law it's the royal law we walk in love that's what God requires of us that's what he expects of us and if there are rules in the New Testament of which there are hundreds and hundreds it's only to safeguard the law of love it's not that we're to keep them all but it's to safeguard the law of love what we so in see in Boaz then is an indication of his gracious generosity yes Boaz is but isn't it God's generosity that we're seeing in Boaz he says oh, listen just pull some of the straw out and leave it so she, she gets something to pick up I'm sure he didn't only do it for her he did it forever because he was showing forth the generous graciousness of God by going beyond the letter of the law demonstrates the spiritual concern for which the law was framed namely the love for God to express in care and provision for the poor the laws were created to take care of the poor and the needy so Boaz is sharing something of the character of God in his dealing with Ruth a God made more fully known to us of course in Jesus Christ so Jesus said if you want to know what the father's like look at me in a sense we could have said do you want to know what the father's like look at Boaz because Boaz was demonstrating the character of God the gracious loving character of God so after a day of hard work Ruth takes the the barley that she's picked up and she 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 beats it out and so she produces uh, barley from it it say it says she's able to take home an enormous ether um ether I don't know how you say that if if I suppose ether it doesn't sound right it sounds like you should say it differently to that anyway now what is what is an ephah well it says it's in the bottom of my bible it says it's 22 liters i'm still no wiser what it is so i thought i'd look it up what it means 
and an ephah was a vessel large enough to put a person in and then I looked oh well is there a weight to this and it looks like about 50 pounds in weight well I know a sack of potatoes is 52 pound I don't know how I know that it's a bit of useless information that I know now can you see Ruth walking home with a sack of potatoes on the shoulder now you know but it was grain so uh, maybe she got some assistance uh, to, to, to get it home but it was an enormous amount this was one day's gleaning was this great big sack of barley which probably she didn't have to go gleaning for another month or even two months I don't know because she was back the next day and uh, and God was blessing her so when Naomi sees Ruth coming in the door well she's surprised and delighted of, of what's gone on and this is what she exclaims the Lord bless him she said he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead this man is our close relative he is one of our kinsmen redeemers I want to look at that word kindness for a little while it's a word that you might even heard preached on uh, of you know in the past it it's it's the Hebrew word hesed kindness hesed it's a word that speaks of warmth it speaks of loyal love it speaks of a sense of committed and reliable faithfulness so when she uses this word to say this man is extremely kind she's she's saying it's a godlike kindness that this man has the word is frequently used to describe God's covenant loving faithfulness to his people the character then of Hesed is most clearly seen in the Lord's willingness to allow his love to continue in mercy towards his people all those chapters that you wade through in the Old Testament where where the people are just being so rebellious and destructive to the covenant relationship and God is simply loving them and being patient with them and gracious to them oh page after page after page of it even when their th their sins threaten to disrupt and to destroy the covenant relationship God is still ministering his hesed his his kindness to his people and nowhere is this better illustrated in the in the book of Hosea the prophet who marries this woman who is well she's an adulteress really and she she goes off with other men and of course he just keeps going after her doesn't he Hosea keeps trying to bring her back and and bring her home it's it's a parallel picture of God's faithfulness and God's mercy to his people God's love for Israel though they had turned their back on him let me read that passage from Hosea it says when Israel was a child I love him and out of Egypt I call my son but the more I call Israel the further they went from me they sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images it was I who taught Ephraim to walk taking him by the arms they did not realize it was I who healed them 
I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck. I bent down to feed them. The hesed of God, the care of God. This hesed, this merciful and gracious loving kindness, Naomi sees in the generosity that Boaz shows for Ruth. Earlier, she had held on to God's grace. Remember, through the suffering and the bereavement in her life, she held on to the grace of God. She never turned against God. She wasn't bitter towards him. Uh, she was bitter about her experiences, but not bitter towards God. Now she experienced the grace of his provision through the generosity of a wealthy farmer. God's grace is manifested through people. It's through people. I said before, didn't I, grace doesn't work on us from above. Grace works through people's lives. If people are to experience the grace of God, they're going to experience it through you. God, God wills and does his pleasure through us. His grace flows through us. Sometimes we want this independent living where it's just us and God. God, fill me with your grace. God, pour your grace upon me. God, give me your grace to do this. God says, the only way I can get grace to you is through others. So Boaz, Boaz was giving or showing them the grace of God. It was coming through Boaz. All the kindness and the generosity and everything, it was coming through this man. Naomi sees the gracious hand of God acting through this man, Boaz. Paul, he shares something with us speaking about grace in 2 Corinthians. It's the passage in 8, 9 and 10 where he's, he's, he's basically speaking about money and he says how we need grace from God to, to be generous. And, and so the whole thing is when people need money in the ministry, it doesn't come down from the sky. It flows through people. It, it, is, it is the grace of God that ministers to them, but it flows through us. Listen to what he says, talking about grace. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Then he goes on to speak about the Macedonian church. The grace of God in this case, where he talks about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that it was, it was related to the generous behavior of the Macedonian church. God is providing for Paul through the grace of the Macedonians. If the Macedonians weren't open to God's grace, he wouldn't have got anything. You say, well, God would have got the money to him somehow. Well, he has to find gracious lives to flow it through. That's just it. You say, well, that means that some missionaries starve to death. You better be sure they do. Some have to come home. Some haven't got enough to find. You know, it, it flows through his people. The grace of God flows through us. It says in 2 Corinthians 8, 2 and 4. 
out of their most severe trials, talking about these Macedonians. So what they knew was severe trials. There, it says their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty. It was theirs. It was theirs. There welled up a rich generosity. See, it welled up in them. The grace that God was going to minister to Paul had to come through the Macedonian people. And we know what they like. They were overflowing with joy. They were in extreme poverty, but there welled up within them a rich generosity. For I testify that they, it was them, that gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely of their own, they urgently pleaded. So he makes the point. It isn't coming from God. It's coming through these people. Well, in the Old Testament, in our story of Ruth, that grace of God was flowing through Boaz. Uh, Paul is saying, the grace, the grace that was ministered to me from the Lord, it flowed through the Macedonian people. And then, of course, he, he says to, um, uh, was it Titus? Oh, um, uh, anyway, one of the brothers that were with him, he says, you're to go back to Corinth and, and you're, to, you're to teach them how to excel in the grace of giving. See, they were mean. They were mean in Corinth. They had stacks of money, but they were mean. And so God couldn't flow his grace through their lives. It couldn't work. 2 Corinthians 8, 13 and 14. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but there might be equality. In the giving, financial giving, it is that there might be equality. Some people have a lot and some people have little. In the kingdom, there is supposed to be something of equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. So God is speaking of equality amongst his people. We're a family. We care for one another. To believe then in the grace of God, it commits us to hard work in his service for one another. Where we see the poor, where we see people without, we seek to meet their need and, and allow the grace of God to flow and touch that life. All this service will include concern and equality in the distribution of resources. There's no sense, no sense at all in the book of Ruth of those in power using the underprivileged for their own advantage. There are rich and there are poor, but we see the equality that God is trying to work out. Boaz is rich without a shadow of doubt. Ruth is a poor woman who's coming to glean. She's got nothing, and yet God wants equality. He wants to provide for all. The gracious provision of God is matched by the concern to express that grace in personal dealings with others, and in particular, with care for the disadvantaged. Ruth then meets Boaz. She was directed to God through the faith of Naomi. She must have had a, a somewhat distorted view of God, but now she's coming to have a fuller picture of what God is like, a new picture, 
a bigger picture. She's already committed herself to God because of the faith of Naomi. And now she's receiving the blessing of God. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please come on back next week for the third installment in the Ruth module. You can also partner with Arise Ministry now by going onto our website at ariseministry.org.uk. You can also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.